You know, I, I'm the only one in my house that likes to eat certain things. And I don't know if you can relate to this, but uh, there's a list of things that I love eating, but no one else in my home, my wife and my three daughters, none of them like eating these things. It, it, it actually feels like a long list to me. Um, things like olives. I'm the only one in my house that likes olives. Mustard. Uh, strong cheeses, like extra sharp provolone and, and blue cheese. Um, mushrooms. Fish. Seafood. Sushi. I know the list is long. I mean, uh, you're probably sympathetic to me right now. You know now how to pray for me. Uh, I'm always, I'm always hoping and praying that one of my daughters will uh, eventually like one of these foods. And and actually, a little miracle happened this past week that I'm still celebrating, and I want you to celebrate it with me. This is my youngest girl, Madeline. Uh, she's four years old. And this past week, Madeline ate a mushroom, a mushroom, and more importantly, she liked it. And. Uh, it was such a big deal. I was, I was so excited making such a big deal of it that she, in her little four-year-old mind, she thought it was a big enough deal to tell every stranger she met. So when she was going through Wegmans later, every person she talked to, she led with, I ate a mushroom. I ate a mushroom. She's very excited. I, I may have been more excited than her, though, because I need, I need some of these girls to like some of the stuff I like to justify buying it. You know, if you're the only one that likes fish and you go to Costco's and they have uh, eight fillets of cod, I, I can't, I could, but I shouldn't eat all that. I shouldn't eat all that by myself. And uh, so it was, it was an exciting thing. It's funny the things that people get excited about, right? Uh, right now, much of the world, not necessarily America, but much of the world is excited about a soccer tournament called the World Cup. And if you watch any of these matches, these fans are crazy. I mean, they're really, really excited. Maybe that doesn't interest you, but maybe a good sale at, the, at your favorite shoe store it gets you excited. Or maybe weather like this, not quite like this, but close to this, uh, gets you excited. Today, we're going to continue our series through the Psalms, and we're going to look at Psalm 8. And in Psalm 8, the psalmist, who is King David, he's excited. He gets really excited, and this is known as a psalm of praise. So last Sunday, we looked at Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm, and today we're looking at Psalm 8, which is a psalm of praise. Now, there are psalms of praise, and there are also thanksgiving psalms. What's the difference? Thanksgiving is usually, thank you for what you have done, but praise is, I praise you for who you are. Okay, So it's the difference between maybe saying to your spouse, thank you for taking the trash out, versus saying, I'm just so glad that you are who you are. So this is a psalm of praise. Thank you, God, for who you are. And I want to read to us the first two verses of Psalm chapter 8. Jason read it for us earlier this morning as our scripture reading. It says this, I'm reading to you from the ESV. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens, and out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Now, Psalm 8 begins and ends with the same sentence. It's bookended by the same exclamation, which is this, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It's like David wants us to remember from the beginning to the very end, not just of the psalm, but of, of your life. Not just of your life, but of all time. From the beginning to the end, this thing is true. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
And in the remainder of these opening two verses, David helps us see both the heights of God's glory and the humility of God's glory. The heights, when he says that you set your glory above the heavens. So so high above your glory, God. But also, he goes on to say how the lowly infant, the small child, can bring glory to God. Because when it talks about out of the mouth of babies and infants, what he's talking about is that out of the mouth of babies and infants, you prescribe praise. So they praise you. And what's wonderful about this is that even the type of praise that is maybe as inarticulate and unimpressive as what a child can muster up, it's still powerful enough to silence God's enemies. This is the sort of God that we serve. Now, in the rest of the psalm, which is what we're going to look at this morning, we have three reminders of why we praise God. Three reminders of why his name is majestic. And I don't know about you, but I need reminders. Do you need reminders ever? I need reminders. And one of the reasons that we need fresh reminders is because sometimes things that are true get old to us because we've known them for so long and they don't move us any longer. I've mentioned in some of my previous messages that this summer I'm coaching my 10-year-old's soccer team, Lilia. What I don't think I've mentioned is that my my nephew, Carter, who's also 10, plays on the same team. And they, they kind of have different skill sets. Carter's more of an attacking player, and Lilia likes playing defense. And Carter's really a gifted soccer player. And he scores a goal on average every game. And so when he scores a goal, his celebrations are very muted. Why? Well, it's part of his personality, but also he does it all the time, right? You score goals all the time, it's kind of like it's not a very big deal. Well, Lilia this year scored a goal on her birthday, her first goal ever. And she celebrated like she just won the lottery. Like she went crazy. She like threw both of her hands in the air and let out a little screech, a little yell. And I was thinking about how different their celebrations are, but it's because one's so used to it and the other one never does it. And so when you get really used to things, maybe you don't get as excited anymore. So we need these reminders because sometimes it's like, yes, God is good. Yes, his reckless love. Yes, he's a king of my heart. Yes, he's good forever. Blah, blah, blah. When's lunch? We need reminders, otherwise it becomes old news to us. But we also need reminders because when we are reminded, this is such an important truth, the more clearly you see who God is, the more clearly you're going to see who you are. When we are reminded of God's nature, it helps us identify who we are. And I don't know about you, but I easily forget. It's called spiritual amnesia. We know who we are, but we live like we're not that person. We know our standing before God because of Jesus' work on our behalf, but we live as if we have to secure our standing before God. We, we, we know that we are victorious, but we live as if we are defeated. We know that there is hope, but we live as if there is none. And so we need these reminders over and over. So this morning, I hope this is helpful for you. We're going to look at three reminders of who God is, why we praise him, and in the light of who he is, what does that mean about you and me? Okay, number one. We see in the psalm that God, he is a mindful, caring God. He is a mindful, caring God. You can fill that in on your notes if you're a note taker. He is a mindful, caring God. And what that means is that because he is that, we are a known and loved people. You are known and you are loved by this God. Let's look at verses three and four of Psalm 8. The psalmist goes on to say, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place. He's describing, G, or describing God as a creator, a designer, an orchestrator, an artist. Verse four, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? 
Now, this psalm, Psalm 8, it echoes the creation account. It's almost like David is saying to, to, to God, when I see the beauty and wonder of creation, when I look up to the skies and see all that you have created, I am so in awe, but I'm not just in awe of creation, I'm in awe of you the creator. Creation was given to us to point us to the creator. Not that we would fall in love and worship creation, but that we would recognize there's a creator, there's a designer. And so David says, when I see the beauty in nature, I'm in awe, but not just of nature, but I'm awe of you. But then he goes on to say, what really takes my breath away is that you think of me. That the same God who painted the skies, hung the stars in the universe, and the entire universe existed in his mind, that God thinks of me. What is man? What is woman? Who am I that you would be mindful of me and that you care for me? Now, think for a moment, if you can, about the mind of God. What is God's mind like? Think about how deep his mind is, how wonderful how brilliant, how creative, how artistic, how productive, how clear, how powerful. Now, some of you probably know some brilliant people. You know some people who are very creative or very artistic or very productive or very clear. Think of the person that you know that is the, the top, the, the most brilliant in each of those categories. And then imagine that you could take the strength of each of those minds, the, the ability of each of those minds, and put it into one mind. And then put that mind into a person. And now you have this person who has the best of everyone, the most brilliant, deep, creative, artistic, functional, powerful, clear mind and put it in a human being. But you know what? That mind compared to the mind of God would be like looking at um, cave drawings versus high definition of a scene. You know, imagine the, the ocean and the shore. That, that's how great God's mind is, so much greater than ours. And God chooses, now let this resonate in your heart this morning, that God chooses to fill his mind with you. He's mindful of you. And this is so important for us. And this is so helpful because I think if we're honest, many of us are haunted by the idea that no one's thinking of us at different times. Who's thinking of me right now? In fact, yesterday I was uh, talking to my girls about this morning's sermon. They always like to know if they're going to be talked about. And uh, I got a window of time where I can still do it. Once they're teenagers, it's probably off the table. Um, but I told him, I said, I'm going to talk about Madeline and how much she uh, likes mushrooms now. And I'm also going to tell a story about Lilia and how when she scores goals, she celebrates. And then my seven-year-old, Caroline, goes, what about me? <laughs> what about me? And she immediately thought, you're not thinking of me. You're thinking of Lilia. You're thinking of Madeline. You're not thinking of me. And now she's in this sermon, so it all worked out. But, but it, was a, it was a perfect illustration of how we're always wondering, is that person thinking of me? You know, when you first fall in love with somebody and you're not with them physically and they're somewhere else or they take a trip and you're wondering, are they thinking of me right now? And we want to be thought about. But what happens when in our hearts we begin to convince ourselves, no one's thinking of me, no one's looking out for me, God's not mindful of me? Well, I think a few things happen. Here's, here's one. We'll end up living our whole lives to be noticed and remembered. Our whole lives, every moment of our lives is like we're on a stage performing, hoping people are impressed. You will enslave yourself to your ability to make yourself interesting and memorable. Or you'll be enslaved to the ability of other people to consistently make you feel special and valued. It's no way to live. 
You'll need someone to be thinking about you all the time. And so you put all your eggs in one relational basket. And you think this person will be the person that will forever settle for me the issue of who's thinking of me because they'll think of me all the time. You'll embrace a life of chaos and conflict because at least when there's chaos and, con- chaos and conflict, you know people are thinking about you because there's a lot of stuff going on. So you run around making sure everybody knows about the chaos and conflict in your life because it makes them think of you and talk about you and engage with you, but your life's not healthy. It's really just this desperate need to sort of have people thinking about you. And, and when you feel forgotten, not known, and like no one's thinking about you, you'll find yourself in deep despair. This is a big deal. And so what do we do? When those moments, we meditate upon God's truth, upon his word. We go to Psalms like Psalm 8, and we tell ourselves this truth. The God whose mind filled the universe, he now fills his mind with you. The God whose mind filled this universe, he chooses to fill his mind with you. And listen, if you really get that, it doesn't make you prideful. It doesn't make you selfish. It doesn't make you impressed with yourself. It makes you deeply humble and eternally grateful. God, who am I that you're mindful of me? the mess I am, the mistakes I've made, the people I've hurt, the choices I've made. But you think of me? This is what the psalmist is saying. And he isn't just mindful. It'd be one thing if he just was thinking of us. But he's also caring. It says that. What is man that you're mindful of him and the son of man that you, are, that you care for him? Now, there is, a messy, there is sort of a futuristic tone to Psalm 8. There is sort of a looking forward to Jesus. But this is also true of us, that God is mindful of us and that he cares for us. In, in 1 Peter, if we jump in the New Testament real quick, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, Peter, Jesus' apostle, writes this phrase. And basically what he's explaining is like, if you're humble, here's one of the indicators of your own humility. He says, you will cast all your cares upon God because he cares for you. You'll cast all your worries and all your cares to God because he cares for you. Earlier this week, I was listening to an interview with a, uh, a famous athletic trainer. He trains great athletes. He trained Lance Armstrong back in the day. He currently trains uh, Giancarlo Stanton, the Yankees player, and his name's Peter Park. And he was talking about growing up, and growing up in a home that was dysfunctional. Nobody noticed him or gave him any time. And looking back on his life, he realized that he threw, he cast all of his cares into fitness. That's what he did. He actually basically said that in the interview. I would bury all of my issues, all of my insecurities, all of my feelings of not being noticed and not having people's attention, I would bury it in exercise. I would bury it in fitness. I don't know what that's like, but I, I bury my cares somewhere too, right? So for some people, because everyone casts their cares somewhere. When Peter says, cast your cares upon God, he's not asking you to do something that you're not already doing in some way. You're already, listen, you're already casting your care upon your God. You are. But Peter's saying, you can cast your care upon capital G God. Why? Because unlike all the other gods, he cares for you. He cares for you. We cast our cares in different things. Some of us cast our cares into a bowl of mint chocolate chip ice cream every now and then, Uh, cast our cares into a bottle, a needle, a pill, a hobby, an accomplishment, a career, a relationship, a bigger home, a nicer car, a more exotic vacation. And we do these things, casting our cares, thinking, well, that's, that'll do it for us. We'll try to figure out what do we do with our cares? What do we do with our worries? What do we, what do we do with our anxieties? What do we do with them? And Peter says, you cast them upon the one who's always thinking about you. And he never stops thinking about you. God never stops caring for you. In 2015, there was a movie that came out, animated film, one of the best um, um, grossing films ever called Inside Out. 
It was a cartoon, and it was about a little girl and the emotions inside of her, anger and envy and sadness and happiness. And as they were working on this um, movie, they consulted with a psychologist. And a psychologist, he's actually a sociologist slash, slash psychologist. His name is Dr. Keltner. And I was listening to him earlier this week talk about worries and anxieties. Now, he's not a Christian. He's trying to say, here's what you do with your worries and your anxieties. And let me just add this caveat. He's talking about sort of normal day-to-day worries and anxieties. He's not talking about uh, medical conditions revolving around anxiety. So he's just talking about our normal, everyday worries and anxieties. And he gave four solutions. I want to share them with you. Not necessarily because I think they're great. They're not bad. They might help. But because I want you to see everybody's casting their care of someone. The first thing he said is, if you're going to deal with your worries and anxieties, you need an increased awareness of the moment that you're in so that you feel more control. You feel like you're more in control. So he said, even saying things like, my heart rate is elevating and I'm starting to sweat. Like, he's like, that sort of awareness or mindfulness of your moment uh, will actually help you get through the moment. But I, when I was listening to him, I thought, isn't that the illusion of control? Have you actually gained any more control? I'm not saying that these tools don't help, but it's an illusion of control. And then another one he said is, well, what you need is an active uh, imagination. And if your imagination is going, you can actually envision that you're in a different moment, a different environment, a different reality. But what's that? That's escapism. That's not actually facing your issues. Then he said, oh, oh, here's another way. You just need the insight and the boldness to speak so that you can rightly name your emotion. So you gotta say out loud, right now, this is how I feel. Now listen, that might be very helpful. It, it may be. I'm, once again, I'm not saying these things aren't helpful, but again, that's the illusion of power. You don't have any more power. And then the ability, he talked about the ability to envision a future beyond your present situation, which in the end of the day is just wishful thinking. So again, I'm not saying any of those things aren't helpful. They probably are. But they're so different. They're so different from the Christian solution, which simply says, cast your cares upon God because God cares for you. And this is the truth, that because God is a mindful, caring God, we are known and loved. Known and loved, both of those things. And this is sort of the combination that I think our whole lives we think it's impossible. No way can somebody fully know me and fully love me. We convince ourselves that if somebody knew me, really knew me, they would love me less. And so we only offer this version of ourselves hoping that they will get to know a version of ourselves and fall in love with that version of ourselves. So we think there's this relationship that the more known I am, the less loved I am. And the less I let people know me, maybe the more they'll love the version of me that I'm letting them know. But here's, here, here's the truth, that in God, it's possible to be fully known and fully loved. And think for a second, if that were true, and that is something we all want, something we all crave, that's really what every romantic comedy movie ever made is about, will this person fully know me and fully accept me and love me? If that was true, you know what we would say? I would be so grateful to that person. I would so be in love with that person. I would be so full of praise. And that's the truth. When we believe that God is mindful and caring, it fills our hearts with praise. Okay, number two. Here's the second thing we see in this text about God. Not only is he a mindful, caring God, he is an image-sharing God. He is an image-sharing God, which means we are an image-bearing people. Now, let me read verse five to you as we keep working our way through the psalm. David says, 
talking about man. Remember, he says, what are you, who's man that you're mindful? What is the son of man that you care? Verse five, he says, yet you have made him, speaking of humankind, you have made humankind a little lower than heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Now, this is foreshadowing Jesus, but it also means something for us. It means something for us that, that he's, he's got a very specific role for us. Now, I want to be brief with this point, not because it's not important. It's actually very important, but because it's, I think, relatively simple. In the creation account, God makes humans in his own image. He says in Genesis 1.26, let us, speaking to the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, let us make humankind in our image. And so God makes humans in his image and likeness, and he gives them dominion over all the earth and everything in it. And what we see is that God is a image-sharing God. He shares his image. He stamps his image on us. It's like he brands us. I, was, I took my girls earlier this week to Dave and Buster's. On Wednesdays, it's half off. That's the day to go. Uh, and, and they played a bunch of games. They won 7,000 tickets. And so we go to cash in our tickets, and they all are grabbing their different things. And I, and I find this cool thing. I ended up not getting it because, I mean, you know, they're kids. It's their tickets. And so, but... <laughs> It was, a, it was a brand that you could use on your grill, and it was a, had a wooden handle, had a metal, uh, a metal rod, and then on the end, there were metal letters, and you could put it together so that it would, sp- and then you would sear your steak, right? So it's like, mine, right? Don't touch, you know? <laughs> Whatever you want. You could brand it. You could put your name on it. You could say mid-rare. You could say, you know, whatever you want. And in a way, God has stamped his very image on every single one of us. Now, what does this mean? It means three things. Number one, it means you belong to him. It's like in Toy Story when Andy writes his name, right, on on Woody's foot forever, anywhere he goes, no matter how dirty he gets and no matter how lost he gets, he can look at the bottom of his foot and see Andy's name on it, and it reminds him, I belong to Andy. And in the same way, God has stamped his image on you, so you belong to him. Number two, it means this. If he stamped our image, his image on us, and by the way, this second one totally flies in the face of culture today, but this is what it means. This is the implication. It means that there is an intended design for your life. There's an intended design for who he created you to be. And it's not for us to necessarily always self-discover or self-define. But here's the other thing it means. If he stamped his image on you, if he placed his image in you, it means that there is inherent dignity and worth in you and in every human you've ever met. You've never had a conversation with somebody who is not an image bearer of God. You'll ne- I don't care what they believe. I don't care what they've done to themselves. I don't care their lifestyle, their choices. I, I don't, you may not get along with them. That person is an image bearer of God. They bear his image. And because they bear his image, they have inherent dignity and worth that can't be taken away even by their own choices because they still bear his image. Now, what does it mean to bear his image? I'll give you a couple quick examples and we'll go to our final point this morning. Number one, it means that we are to be creative because God is a creator. He's creative. And so when we exercise creativity in our work and art, we bear his image well. He's an orderly God, which means when we exercise administrative wisdom and strategic plans and, 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 and handle details, we bear his image well. You know that about God, right? He's orderly. He's not, a, he's not a God of chaos and disorder. And if you don't think he cares about details, Try reading your way through Leviticus and Deuteronomy sometime. Try reading how detailed he was and how to construct the tabernacle and how to build the temple. He cares. That stuff matters. That's his heart. That's his image. And for some of us, we have that in us. Or some of us have more of his creative image, and some of us have a little more of his administrative image, but both are image bearers. 
productive. He's a productive God. So when we use our bodies in a way that maximizes our physical ability, whether it's through sports or, or, or exercise, when we use our minds in a way that create inventions and think of things, we're bearing his image. And he's a relational God, which means that when we, when we give ourselves to the risk of relationship, when we love one another and serve each other and consider people over ourselves, that means that we're bearing his image well. And so we praise him because he made us in his image. And by making us in his image, he gave us identity, he gave us value, he gave us worth, and we do so, we praise him by bearing his image well, okay? So he's an image-sharing God. And then lastly, this morning, the last thing we see in Psalm 8 is this. He is a purpose-providing God. Verse 6, 7, 8, and 9. Let's read the rest of the psalm. He says, you have given humankind dominion over the work of your hands. So all of humans, we have this dominion over the work of his hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, so the domesticated animals, and also the beasts of the field, the, the wild animals, the birds of the heavens, and the fish of the sea. So from the highest of heights to the deepest of depths, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. Verse 9, the final exclamation again, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Now listen, what the psalmist says here about humankind's dignity, value, purpose, and dominion was so unique in the ancient Near Eastern culture. So unique. Only the Hebrews had this sort of perspective on dignity, value, worth, image-bearing, and purpose in life of exercising dominion over all of creation. All the other ancient Near Eastern creation myths, which you can find online and read them if you want, in every single one of them, humans were never part of the original plan. They were an afterthought. They were an accident. In fact, one of the commentators I read this week said this, humans were, quote-unquote, brought into existence as a consequence of the gods becoming tired and working so hard to provide for themselves. That sounds like some of the reasons we have children sometimes. I'm tired of mowing the lawn, so let's have some kids so they can do the work. Just heads up, it takes a while before that cashes in. Um, (laughs) Humans were made to be servants to these gods. The gods had no interest in hard labor. They just wanted to sit back, eat grapes, and just have fun. So they didn't want to work, so they created humans to do all the work. And often the humans were created out of a tremendous act of violence. And in this, act, in this way of thinking of human dignity was achieved through the idea that gods needed them to serve them. So that's how you proved your worth. But here instead, God gives us inherent dignity and worth in giving us his very image so that people rule over all creatures. So here's what I'm saying. In every other worldview back then, work, the idea of doing work, was a curse inflicted by selfish, lazy gods. But in the biblical creation account, work is a gift. It's a purpose provided to us by a loving God. Now, why were we created? Why were were we created? The psalm reminds us of this here. God's original plan, if you read Genesis 1, 2, and 3, when he created us, it was for these reasons. Listen, that we would bear his image well, that we would fill the earth, that we would tend the garden, which means that we would make something of creation, that we would make culture, that we would have dominion, not abusive power, not wasteful power, not abusing this earth and using it for our selfish purposes, but have dominion, which means kind, reign, and rule over it, caring, reign, and rule. And then Genesis 3 happens, and sin enters the world. And what happens with the original plan? Well, sometimes 
Maybe you get together, you come home, and you're trying to figure out what we're going to have for dinner. You're just trying to take stock of the ingredients you have in the house. And uh, maybe you're like, ah, oh, man, I really want spaghetti and meatballs tonight. Really want spaghetti and meatballs. And you go into the fridge, and there's the ground beef, bingo. But then you go to the cupboard, no pasta. So what do you do? You, well, you could run to Wegmans, but you don't want to because it's 95 degrees out. So, so you scrap the plan, and you make a new plan. You're like, okay, we have ground beef, but no noodles. Let's do meatloaf. Let's do burgers, right? You, you come up with a new plan. And sometimes I think we think that's how God works because he created this perfect universe, gave us dominion to reign and rule. We messed it up, and now God's like, abort mission. Forget all of that. Forget all the plans and purposes I had for them. I have a new plan for them. And the new plan is this. Just stay out of trouble, would you? Like, just be a good person. Just go to church, say your prayers, read your Bibles, and wait around for me to get you out of this earth because it's no good anymore. And you know what? It's not true. That's a misunderstanding of the meta-narrative of Scripture. God has the same plan for you that he had for Adam and Eve. The same plan, that you would bear his image well, that you would reign and rule, that you would exercise dominion, that you would make culture, that you would write the best songs that have ever been written, that you would paint the most beautiful paintings that have ever been seen, that you would come up with inventions and come up with cures, and that you would, we would harness the power even that God has placed in his creation and take all that he's given us to glorify and honor him. We have a purpose and a mission. Sometimes Christians get bored with their lives because they think, well, my mission is just behave, just behave and try to be good enough and hope that uh, when Jesus comes back on that day, I was very good. It's such a misunderstanding. God has so much more for you than that. It's that, but it's so much more than that. He has a purpose and a mission, and our purpose is to extend, listen to this, our purpose is to extend his reign and his rule over all of creation through everything we do by living as a known people and a loved people, by bearing his image in all we do, and by the way, helping other people to do the same. You know, when we're telling people about Jesus, it's not just about getting them to pray a prayer or convert to Christianity. We're trying to help them bear God's image well. We're saying there is a way to bear the image of your creator God, but it's the way that he's asked us to do it, by honoring him. We do this by working with, in, through, and for the good of creation. And we do this by praying what Jesus told us to pray. God, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And when we see our God as mindful and caring, as an image sharer, and as a purpose-providing God, you know what we'll say? Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic, how majestic is your name. We praise you, God. We thank you, God, for who you are. Let's stand together. I want to respond. We're going to respond in song. Uh, I just feel like it's the appropriate way to respond to a message on praise. And Antonia is going to lead us just through the chorus and bridge of a song that we sang earlier. But as you're singing, let it be different than it was uh, 30 minutes ago. Let it be informed by this truth that God knows you. He's thinking of you this morning and he cares for you. That God has put his image on you. He stamped his image on you and that God's giving you a purpose and a mission for your life. Let's lift our voices in this place. Use the gift of music and song to praise our great God.